faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. People believe tall buildings at a single bound. The instant of ship town is now the man of steel. Superman! Welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This is episode 64 and the second half of our look at the Smallville Season 11 comic, so we'll be picking up the storyline Guardian in just a moment. First, some random thoughts on digital comics. See, when I started Superman Forever Radio way back in 2010, you know, back in the day, I had a certain outlook. I was very, very dyed-in-the-wool floppy, single-issue-only guy. Because my thoughts were that comics were a collector market. We were in this to collect, and that's part of the fun. Now, I retain uh, quite a bit of that mentality. But I was very dismissive of trade paperbacks, and the thought of buying comics digitally was almost unthinkable. There were exceptions. The DVD-ROMs of Marvel Comic PDFs, uh, they were excellent. Uh, But it was always awkward to read a book on the computer screen. I also came to my views on monthly physical comics from another viewpoint. The single issues kept comic shops open, and money in the coffers of creators who made them. At least that was what I thought. Because after all, I had... Well, a lot of trade paperbacks were bought and sold at big chain bookstores, like Barnes & Noble and Borders. Not mom-and-pop comic shops. So I had this notion that it was starting to leak out to the mainstream, my little club here. Because it was, to me, a slippery slope with trade paperbacks, which would lead to the end of the industry, at least as we knew it. My logic was, companies would realize that they aren't making money on the monthly issues, and decide to forego them in favor of trade and digital-only publications. So the monthly issues would go away, the market would become dominated by Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Clearly not Borders anymore. God, I miss Borders. Uh, It's really not not that far-fetched. At least not as it seems, because DC and Marvel don't make their money on single issues. Not like they did in the past, not like in the 90s with the spectator market. And there was something else to that whole thought process, too, a bit of superiority, to be honest with you. Because with trade paperbacks and graphic novels being sold in mainstream stores, that brought in a lot of tourists to the community. Excuse me while I adjust, I apologize. Add that comic movies were becoming the norm. And we have more tourists. Here is the problem with that. There are a lot of these tourists who will see movies like Thor. And then grab the first, you know, maybe Straczynski trade. And then they want to tell you about the character like they're an expert. Which the word expert is a scary, scary term. Expert implies that you have nothing left to learn. You have no exploration. I can never imagine applying the term expert to myself. Do I know quite a bit? Sure. But I'm always learning more, and that's kind of the beauty of doing a show like this, is I explore, I learn, I expand my knowledge base. So, to be treated... To be treated as if I'm not a substantial member of the comic community by somebody who, you know, does this bare minimum of work. I saw the movie, I read a trade. is insulting. Because I grew up with comics, in a time before the internet. So when we wanted to learn more about the comics we're reading, we, wait for it, read comics. We found back issues where we could. 
When I fell into the X-Men and wanted to know more, I bought back issues, or filled in knowledge gaps from older collectors who read those back issues. Or we read Alter Ego, Comic Scene, which featured interviews with the people who wrote or drew the back issues. So there was a self-contained loop in the community. And the thing is, that's a double-edged sword. Because comic collectors were, well, I don't know why I say were, comic collectors are territorial. There was a time when a fist fight could break out over Marvel versus DC if you got into that argument. And the rivalry between the companies at a fan level was like the Sharks and the Jets. Somebody's going to break out in song. No, somebody's going to get stabbed. But if a burgeoning fan wandered into a comic shop, which back then a lot of comic shops were made almost to stave these people off. Usually they were dark. Um, the help would ignore them. Um, it was, well, <laughs> very uh, unwelcoming. So if uh, this want, you know, somebody who's interested in them, a fan, a would-be fan, wanders into them, and they didn't have a wealth of knowledge, these fans and even the store staff will drive them off by criticizing their lack of knowledge. I've, I saw it happen many times. So it was a feeling at the time like we had earned our stripes because we had done the footwork to learn about these comics and these characters. But we were driving away potential new fans off with our sense of superiority. And then came the internet. And then came 2000's X-Men movie. Suddenly comics went mainstream. Which, once again, double-edged sword. There's a scary component to that. That suddenly the public is kind of getting into our stash here. And then there's, you know, a potential group of new fans to discuss with. To, you know, be that older comic person to shepherd them. So, for me, and this is kind of a, a an admission I'm a little bit ashamed of. The devout commitment to monthly books and that... And back issues came from that time because I had earned my stripes. I didn't like Wikipedia quoting tourists trying to educate me on something that I knew because I read the books. It was like a kid trying to tell a World War II veteran what the war was like based on a history book. So what changed? What changed my viewpoint? Why am I covering digital comics? Well, it was the New 52. And I'm being dead serious about this. When DC decided to reboot Superman in the universe, I realized that my monthly commitment wasn't what they cared about anymore. And for those of you that were around, I did a lengthy treatise on how I felt DC Comics was flipping me off, um, some of which I'd like to maybe revisit and revise and maybe talk a little bit more, but it was the new blood that they were looking at. The Barnes & Noble Wikipedia crowd. That's who they wanted because those people had more money they had a longer lifespan. I'm still not sure. But, well, I know a big component of that is that, you know, they're making money on those trades. Because to publish the trades, the floppies have made just enough to justify the, the publication of those. So the trades are, I wouldn't say all profit, but majority of it is profit. But the good thing is, the residual of that is that it opened up my mind. Because the loyalty I had given hadn't been returned. And the inevitable change from print to digital was happening. And the trade paperback had become the main focus. Now, a lot of that hasn't been the case. Because there's good monthly books that aren't written for the trade. But, up to that point, there were a lot that were. Uh, it had opened my eyes. So when I got a tablet, I wanted to try out digital comics. And it isn't my preferred medium. But it does the job, and it has a lot of potential. I've grown to actually enjoy the digital. 
And Smallville Season 11 is the beginning of that potential, I think. It's a good idea. It's putting out these weekly chapters, and the comic has made money before it's printed. So it's almost that same relationship that trades have to the, the standard single issues. You know, there's a foundation of finance already below it. So putting out these single issues, it could be majority profit. And the digital medium also affords new readers the chance to actually see some hard to track down back issues and learn the way I did. It opens those doors to kind of p get people off of Wikipedia and into the actual books themselves. And trades do that too, now that I look upon it with different eyes. And so no more instances of the local comic shop forgetting to pull a book or getting shortchanged on an order. Just jump on the app because I have left shops for skipping my order. So it may kill the collector side of things, but it is good for reading. So I'm still kind of on the fence because there are sacrifices that need to be made, but it definitely opens up a broader world and a lot of potential for newer fans, for younger fans to really jump on and consume this material. And that portion's a good thing, but it does affect the comic shops. It does affect the collector side of things. Uh, it's a slippery slope. I, I still believe it's a slippery slope. But Smallville Season 11 is good reading. <laughs> to segue it back to my point, he said, transitioning from his rant. And after this promo break, we will get back to covering the second half of the first story arc, Guardian. So I'll be back in two and two. You know, Chuck Woolery style. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.linkson.com Alright, we are back. Jumping back into the second half of Guardian with chapters 7 through 12. All were written by Brian Q. Miller with art by Pere Perez. Colors by Chris Beckett and lettering by Saida Timofonte. I'm going to go ahead and apologize now for my voice. It's a little bit raspier than I would prefer. Harsh winter winds have been fighting a little bit of, a, of an infection. I don't have it as bad as my wife does, but it's definitely affecting me. So I'm going to push through and get this episode out for you. Uh, the cover for the book, uh, the print issue and the digital, was by Cat Stags for all three. Uh, this one 
for the first three chapters depicts Superman floating in the air, ready for battle, as the faces of Lex Luthor and Tess Mercer are superimposed into a background featuring the HED, or head drones, introduced in our previous chapters. That was last episode, y'all. And the story continues with Oliver and Chloe Queens searching for the cornfields outside Smallville for the ship that crashed down in Chapter 1. The couple is shocked when they find the craft, and it bears the Queen Industries logo. This craft is an alien. Back at Star Labs, Lois visits Emil to ask about Commander Henshaw, who you'll remember was severely injured last time when the Guardian shuttle blew up real good. Hamilton tells Lois that Henshaw is covered in severe burns and has lost motor function. Basically, Hank is trapped with a full consciousness inside of a lifeless body. And that is the subject of many, 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 many of my nightmares. When Lois speaks to Henshaw's wife, Mrs. Henshaw breaks down crying and demands to know why Superman didn't save Hank. Lois doesn't have a satisfactory answer and simply tells her that she is sorry and she is sure that Superman is too. And elsewhere at LexCorp, Superman arrives to float outside of Lex's window and then shatters all of the glass with a Hulk-like superclap. Soups begins accusing Lex of intentionally causing the accident that injured Henshaw, which Lex denies. And then three fully armed military choppers arrive, pointing their floodlights at Superman, who was standing menacingly near Lex, a fact that Luther points out, along with Superman being present when a Russian space station explodes, and the Guardian shuttle itself. Oh, that doesn't look good. As it begins to dawn on Superman that Lex has set him up, and now he's in trouble, Luthor simply tells the Man of Steel, this is the part where you run. And so ends the chapter. And you know, the second half of the first episode, he says with air quotes, even though it's an audio medium, is moving at a rapid clip. So beginning with Chloe and Oliver in the cornfields, this banter is wonderful. On the show, I always assumed that Justin Hartley and Allison Mack pulled off a lot of the heavy lifting as far as dialogue, and I still think that's true. But Perez's art sells the pages, as if the actors are speaking them, thanks to well-done layouts and body language. Chloe even makes a crack about a boxing glove arrow, which Oliver snaps, that was a prototype. It's a good, friendly dig at the character's most well-known accessory. There's also a callback to another, or well, more than one, to other alien visitors from the show's past, like Doomsday, Brainiac, and the Kandorians. It would be really, really easy to sweep the TV show aspects of this book under the rug. Because it is going a different direction. It is kind of a different beast. But it could also go the other way and be heavy-handed about them to sell the show to comic gimmick. The temptation to either be a fresh new take on Superman or look, kids, Smallville just as it was would be really, really strong, especially for me. So massive kudos to Miller for really blending both mindsets to make a book that works on all of those levels and dares to be its own thing simultaneously. And what a great reveal on the craft. This little subplot that's kind of building and bubbling in the background has been really good, and it's going to be it's more of a long-term storyline, to be honest. So what is this ship? Hmm? We'll be getting a bigger revelation at the end of the Guardian storyline, but prepare yourself for a shock. No, really. And back to Henshaw. Remember how I told you that Henshaw's speech about the touch and sensation was a bit too on the nose? This is why. Of course, the character who talked about how great touch and taste is will end up in a worthless husk of a body. I think the horror of existing in a body that doesn't work, well, is just there while being fully aware. I mean, that's, that's an idea that sells itself. As I mentioned, I have nightmares about that all the time. And they played with that a little bit with Tony Stark in the 90s issues of Iron Man. 
Uh, there's a bit of appropriate heavy-handedness with Henshaw's wife paying her husband a visit and the imprint of her hand on the oxygen tank. That image sells what the speech didn't. Really, really solid work on that scene. And then her why didn't Superman save him speech. While my knee-jerk reaction is to flashback to the beginning of the Grounded storyline in Superman 700, I realize that, well, she's a bit more justified. Superman was there, and he was just seconds too slow. Granted, he did everything he could, and he did save Hank's life and the life of the flight crew, but, well, he didn't stop this from happening to Hank. I mean, she could be a bit more thankful that Hank is alive, because without Superman, the ship, the crew, Hank, toast. Ashes. But conversely, if it weren't for Superman, there's a good chance that Lex wouldn't have created the Guardian platform at all. So, awkward. And speaking of Lex and Superman and everything that comes with that, I love that we get the bit from the Superman the Animated Series and Lois and Clark with Superman hovering outside the window, and then we kick it up a notch with Superman shadowing, shadowing, shattering the glass. I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. It was a bit of an oh crap moment. That's the kind of moment where you reserve the glowing red eyes. When you know Superman is pissed. Uh, somebody should be crapping their pants if his eyes are glowing red. Lex is deliciously evil, and then the turn on the turn, the military shows up. It's not storming the offices of the Daily Planet as we saw in Secret Origin, which is a good thing. And we know now Lex will go to any lengths to destroy Superman and step on any lives that get in the way. And the chapter leaves us on the seat of our pants, so let's not delay. Let's jump right into chapter 8. It's 4 a.m. in Metropolis. Wait, isn't that a Matchbox 20 song? Anyway, it's 4 a.m. Lois is placing an urgent call to her father, General Sam Lane. And General Lane explains that he is in the middle of something and that something is chasing Superman. Lois tries to dissuade the general from pursuing the Man of Steel, to which he responds with, I'm following orders. Just as the call ends, Superman streaks across the, the sky over Lois, who calls her fiancé. Superman chats with Lois as a missile pursues him, and tired of this game, Superman pivots around and snags the missile out of the air, crushing it as the three choppers catch up to him. As the choppers surround Superman, he asks Lois if she thinks her father knows that he is Superman, or more accurately, if he knew that Clark was the Blur who became Superman. Lois has no idea if her father knows, and Superman tells the chopper to stop firing. He'll talk, but there's no need for more property damage. Instead of stopping, the choppers lay into Superman to see what he is made of. The bullets bounce off of the Man of Steel, but Lois has to dive under her car to keep from being hit by the ricochets. The chopper isn't so lucky because a stray bullet takes out the back rotor. Just as the helicopter drops from the sky, Superman scoops Lois out from underneath the, the, the falling chopper and saves her, which convinces General Lane to back off since, you know, the Man of Steel just saved his daughter. Too bad about the crew of the chopper. Hmm? And back, on, uh, back at LexCorp, Luthor has a conversation with Tess Mercer explaining that the toxin she used to wipe his memory has an unexpected side effect. It was used by Bell Reef Prison and it seemed to bond doctor and patient in a strange way much like Lex and Tess are bonded. But Lex has a plan to change that. Right after that, Lex appears at Star Labs, consoling Mrs. Henshaw and telling her that he is going to remedy this situation. But first, he must buy one of Hamilton's drones. And the chapter comes to a close. Wait, we kind of made a jump here at the start of the chapter. How did Lois find out that General Lane was chasing Clark? 
there's a gap here, and I can only sur kind of surmise or theorize that Clark called Lois and told her? If I'm trying to no-prize it, that's the direction I would go. But I want you to imagine your father-in-law-to-be chasing you with a military chopper. I'm really glad my father-in-law is cool. I've had a few girlfriends whose father uh, was a bit off, but more in the unlicensed taxidermy kind of way. I've never been chased with anything but a dead chipmunk, though. Definitely no helicopters. And I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it because it needs to be said. Michael Ironside forever. There, Darkside, are you happy? And then we get a great scene with Superman and the missile, which leads me to ask the question, if Superman could grab the missile and crush it at any time, why did he decide to stop right over Lois? Because that's putting her in danger, dude. And then the question that was left hanging ambiguously at the end of the series, and Michael Ironside's last appearance, does he know that Clark is the Blur? It isn't answered, of course, and it shouldn't be answered because then it would become really annoying. Because on the run of the series, it seemed like everybody learned Clark's secret. But we get plenty to chew on in that respect, with Sam Lane hesitating before following his orders to see what Superman is made of. I love when one panel can sell a moment, like the one of General Lane rubbing his forehead as he contemplates what he is about to do. There is a weight on those lines on his face that speaks volumes. And then it all hits the fan, as bullets fly everywhere and tear up everything. And once again, Superman, if you are putting Lois in danger and aware of it as you seem to be, why not move? Metropolis is a big place. And then I realize I'm talking to a fictional character. That really snuck up on me. Ah, really, I can go to a horror movie and not yell at the screen at the recently sexed up soon-to-be victim as she runs up the stairs, I promise. Let me rephrase that. Um, I don't understand why Superman didn't change locations when the bullets started flying, or before. Sure, he's trying to stop the chopper from firing, but he had the chance to realize that his tactic wasn't working and move away from that spot, and he didn't. And let me add to that, when the chopper crashes, Superman whisks Lois away, but what about the people in the chopper? They didn't do the G.I. Joe bailout, the helicopter still exploded, it blew up as Superman is making nice with Lois. Seriously, the panel is Superman flying into the air, Lois in his arms, as flames fly up from the street. And Superman simply says, hey you, those soldiers are dead. And don't look to General Lane for sympathy because he calls off the attack when he sees Superman save his daughter. Judging by the crew compliment of General Lane's helicopter, there are two pilots and then the general. So the two nameless guys who got blowed up real good, they don't matter? I'm going to give them a name. I'm giving them a name... And those names are Nathan and Chad. Rest in peace, Nathan and Chad. And then the rest of the chapter is talking heads. But when those heads are the bald Lex Luthor and the red tresses of Tess Mercer, you kind of pay attention. And we get another callback to the TV series when Lex mentions the time that Lionel Luthor tried to erase Lex's memory. A scene that stood out because they used Johnny Cash's Hurt. And it loves me some Johnny Cash. Don't expect me to tell you the exact episode. I don't have the memory that Michael Bailey does, but I do remember that it was in Season 3. But what is Lex up to with the head drones? Let's jump into Chapter 9 and the last portion for the third print issue. As Superman and Lois have a romantic moment, and I don't mean that as a euphemism, Chloe and Ollie continue to search the cornfield, take, really talking about their marriage and the potential move to Star City. And that's when they find footprints burned into the ground. 
and they realize that someone else, somebody large, is tracking their strange visitor as well. Chloe and Ollie arm themselves as a shadow-covered stranger looks on. Lex and Tess have another chat as Emil is locked out of his own lab because Luthor is conducting a procedure on Commander Henshaw. Henshaw awakens and wonders why he can't feel his wife's hand on his own. And then Lex greets the newly resurrected commander, who reaches out with a mechanical arm and begins to choke the billionaire. We pull back to reveal that Henshaw now exists within one of Hamilton's HED drones, and he is ticked. Okay, the romantic moment. Clark embracing Lois and flying into the air with, with her really, really, really well done. Maybe not well enough to justify two pages, but it still worked, and in the print version it is only one page. Likewise, the long chat between Oliver and Chloe, it was way too long, too drawn out, and talking heads may work on a television screen, but comics are a whole other brand of real estate. Space counts. I ended up getting very, very impatient with this chapter and wished we could get a move on. Most of the conversations felt like rehashes of previous talks between the same characters. Once again, a bit more exposition and less showing us the process of converting Hank Kinshaw to a cyborg. Very frustrating, and I know I'm kind of playing armchair quarterback here, but it, it feels like Henshaw is getting the short end of the stick as far as development. And we kind of got the whole sense, um, you know, the whole senses are the best thing, and all-American hero ideas dumped on us when Henshaw could have been introduced way earlier, say in Lex's conversation with General Lane. <clears throat> I think the pacing of the chapter does draw the slower stuff out a bit. Kind of like the Shazam backup pieces in Justice League. When there is exposition and you only have seven pages a month, even the slightest bit of talking heads gets frustrating. Time is a factor in comics because we have to wait a week between these chapters. However, I will say that subsequent installments, both in this storyline and beyond, well, really beyond, but they tighten us up, and the weekly format gets to be more comfortable. I dare say that the books make the weekly format work for them. And that brings us to the end of Chapter 9, and right up to a promo break. I'm going to take a quick break, take a drink, refresh my throat. When I come back, we will look at the final three chapters and the conclusion of Guardian. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.lipson.com. Every legend has a beginning. And we are back once again. And we're bringing Guardian to a finale with the final three chapters, which form the fourth print issue. That means a new cover by Cat Staggs with Superman face-to-face -face with a head drone with only the robot's Tron-like shoulders visible. Another stellar cover. 
I mean, Superman is floating here. He's giving his nemesis a look that says, I have had enough of your crap. Uh, since the creative team remains the same, we get to jump right into the story. In which the Metropolis Fire Department arrives on the scene of Superman's battle with General Lane's helicopters. The scene where Nathan and Chad died. One for me. One for my homeboys. But all of the fires have been put out by our friendly neighborhood Superman that... Uh, yeah, I'll stick with that. Uh, speaking of Superman, he arrives to talk with General Lane, stating that he comes in peace. After Superman confirms that Lois is safe, he and the General have a heart-to-heart, -heart, a little powwow, about how important it is for men like them, men in positions of power and responsibility, to control their tempers. As the two are figuring out how to make Superman's presence work, Superman gets a signal in his Bluetooth headset. It's Hamilton telling Superman about Henshaw losing his mind. So, Superman flies off to save the day. It's, it's what he does. Henshaw is shaking and beating Lex. And along the way, he finds his real fleshy body and proceeds to burn it to a crisp. We're talking burnt bacon, which is a sin. The bacon, not the body. He can do whatever he wants with his body. That's his business. But don't you dare mess up bacon. But before Henshaw does anything bad to Lex or his wife, Superman, of course, arrives on the scene bashes the Henshaw drone to pieces, and then Henshaw pulls himself together, and the chapter ends with Superman and Henshaw ready to fight. Flawless victory. Okay, a bit less to say on these uh, following chapters, really, because they're kind of condensed. They're just, everything is spooled up and unreleased here. That's not a bad thing. Now, of course, I like the fire department showing up and Superman leaving a note that reads, Sorry for the mess. How could I not? That's kind of a given. It's only missing some crooks tied up with a light pole, a bent-up light pole. One thing that I didn't expect to like was Superman and General Lane having a frank discussion. Lane actually shows Superman the respect that he deprived Clark Kent on the show, but it's still kept ambiguous if Lane knows that Clark and Superman are one and the same. Clark, in turn, responds to his future father-in-law with humility, almost the same child-to-father relationship Clark would have with, say, Jonathan Kent. This was the high point of the chapter, in terms of characters at least. However, looking at this page with Lane and Superman, I see... Is that... It is! It's them! It's Nate and Chad! They're bandaged up, but they're alive! Hooray, Nate and Chad! I thought they were dead, but they are alive. So is Paul McCartney. Which may prove awkward for anyone listening to this years later, but the joke is kind of funny now. To me. Um, Henshaw's face on the drone's display. It's, it's, okay, it makes me think of Kane from RoboCop 2. That's the only thing I could think of when looking at it, because it's this digital display that changes color with his mood. That really throws me off. And as I mentioned, we drop into a long overdue action sequence for the rest of the chapter, including my favorite panel. It's on the last page, Henshaw walks out of a red fog with only the lighted piping of the drone showing, including a shield-shaped segment of the chest. Of course, it's a subtle nod to the character's history as the cyborg Superman, but really, just a cool image, and there is nothing wrong with cool images. Especially when we're still getting storytelling alongside it. It doesn't sacrifice that for a cool image. But that rolls us right into Chapter 11, with their first half being this huge, huge fight between Superman and Henshaw. And I mean, it is epic. They're throwing each other through buildings, bashing each other with a full-on superhero battle. I'm down with this. And Superman is trying to talk Henshaw down the whole time and get in touch with the inner Hank, somewhere deep inside. 
But with Henshaw a bit subdued, Superman does what he must. He disconnects the drone's head from its body, which is then placed in storage at Star Labs. And the second half of the chapter returns us to Green Arrow and Chloe. Still rummaging around in the cornfield, they find the ship's passenger, who offers up some resistance to Ollie's questions of where the ship came from. The only indication we get of this person's identity is that their ship was built by Ollie's wife. Chloe gets a solid gunshot off, hitting the stranger in the shoulder, but when Chloe tries to touch the mystery person, the two of them get thrown different directions. While both Chloe and Ollie are getting their wits back together, another strange visitor approaches our first visitor and blasts them with this massive red beam. Ollie and Chloe only get a glance at our new player on the board, and when they find the dying stranger, they remove the helmet to reveal a brunette Chloe Sullivan. I told you there'd be a shocker. You didn't see that coming, unless you read the books, and that's not the same. The alternate Chloe mentions that the other Earth, Earth 2, is gone. And that is where we wrap up the chapter. Since I kind of already gave my thoughts on the fight sequence in the synopsis, let's jump to the second half. Following this massive fight and Hinshaw being made into a head, get it, head, H-E-D, just like the hazardous environment drone, let's all groan, just like we did when the, in The Dark Knight Rises when we learned that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was Robin. Okay, are we done? Good. So with these last bits being the end of what would be the first episode of the season, with every 12 equaling an episode, the setup for the long-term story for the season involving the alternate Earth occurs here. This was an Earth we saw in Season 10, with Clark having been adopted by Lionel Luthor and becoming Ultraman. It's intriguing, and it plays out really well throughout the series going forward. And the stranger that kills the alternate Chloe is very, very reminiscent of the Monitor from Crisis on Infinite Earths. Very nice touch there. So, while we get the basic climax of Guardian, we still have enough to draw us into the following storyline, and it also draws us into the final chapter a.k.a. the falling action of Guardian, the epilogue, if you will. In this chapter, we once again see a sunset in Metropolis as Superman pays a visit to Lex Luthor, using the door this time. Superman tries to save face and apologizes to Lex, even offering his hand for a handshake. Lex doesn't shake hands and instead reveals that the isotope that powered Henshaw's ship has a long-term half-life, and one that marks Superman. It's harmless, but Lex is now able to track Superman's whereabouts anywhere in the world, which makes having a secret identity pretty tricky. Superman informs Lois that they won't be seeing much of each other until he figures out how to shake the radiation as the Alt-Chloe dies at the Smallville Hospital. Before she dies, she leaves a warning, tell Superman that the crisis is coming. And as Lex sleeps, Tess concentrates, trying to control his motor skills, trying to move him, and she manages to move one of Lex's fingers. And Guardian wraps up with a final scene of Superman floating over Metropolis as Lois tells him thanks to his super hearing that she loves him, and Superman flies off to fight his never-ending battle. And we come to the end of our coverage. Since this chapter and the second half of the last set up the long-term storyline, and it's a stopping point for us, I'm going to make some final thoughts on Guardian. First, the ending left me happy. And really, despite some of my gripes, this comic became a real treat. It's a true, true surprise. Little gem in the world of comics. 
It's pure Superman. It evolves the TV series and it's allowed the breathing room to bring us uh, things like Henshaw's a drone and the ensuing epic fight. The art is solid. The costume looks excellent. I like the two-tone blue. I like the S on the belt buckle. Welling's frame is expanded in comic form, by the way, his his physique. So he actually looks like somebody who could scrap with Darkseid, unlike, you know, a hero wearing a black outfit and a trench coat. And I'm happy to say the book really continues to be excellent. It's straightforward. It's a superhero story, one that begins to expand the DCU in the Smallville continuity. The following storyline, Detective, introduces Batman. And following that is a flash-based tale which features Impulse and a guest star by Jay Garrick, among others. While the show avoided all of this, the comic is ready, willing, and proud to dive in. My hope is that these two episodes have enticed you to take a look at this comic, whether in print form or digital. I know there's a lot of people out there who were frustrated with the New 52 and feeling that there's not a Superman out there for them. And you know what? Regardless of how you felt about the TV series, this book sheds a lot of the weight, like budgets, actors, likes, you know, licenses, and the no tights, no flights. It's simply good, solid Superman comics and every week, which is a bit like the triangle era of Superman when they, there would be a Superman book on the racks every week. Regular chapters are released three Fridays a month, while currently there is a storyline happening that fills in the fourth Friday that involves Batman and Martian Manhunter. Once a week, it's nice to have the digital format to make this possible, so keep an eye out for that. And of course, the print edition is available monthly at, their, at your local comic shop. But that brings us to a good landing point for this series. Maybe down the road I'll cover the next storyline, but we've got a lot ahead of us. Starting with the return of a segment that is back by popular demand, Superman the Animated Series. And for the first time since episode 49, I'm bringing back Superman the Animated Series because you demanded it. Well, also because I want to cover it. It was part of the show's mandate, but primarily since I put it aside, most of the feedback I've gotten was that listeners missed it. So admittedly, I didn't find any great new approach to it, other than to just stop at the commercial breaks to share my notes and remove the S-Shield rating system. After all, this show is about appreciation and exploration, not a full-on review show. There will be a few episodes where we will leave the show on the sidelines. Most of that is when guests come on. But there will also be episodes that I cover multiple episodes of the animated series, so it will even out, and by the end of 2013, we will have covered every regular episode of the show. So let's jump back in with Superman the Animated Series, Season 2, Episode 9, picking up right where we left off with Episode 49. This episode is entitled Action Figures and aired on September 20th, 1997. It was written by Hilary Bader, directed by Kenji Hachizaki. Uh, in addition to our regular cast, you know, Tim Daly, Clancy Brown, Dana Delaney, we also get Malcolm McDowell returning as Metallo. We get Ernie Hudson, Winston Zedmore, if you will, as uh, Professor Felix, who is the children's dad I will refer to quite a bit, and also a brief bit as Ron Troop, even though he is not credited. 
The Felix kids, Bobby and Sarita, are played by Nassan, Nicholas, and Lauren Robinson, respectively. And we open to a news program talking about villains we've seen before. This time, it's focusing on Metallo, who we last saw in the episode Way of All Flesh, walking back to the shore after trying to kill Lex Luthor on his yacht. The episode then moves to a remote island, complete with Volcano, where young Bobby Felix is playing with his action figures and refusing to share with his sister Sarita. Out of the island's shore comes Metallo, which scares Sarita because she believes it's a monster, and who wouldn't? He has lost all of his skin now. He is simply a metal skeleton, T-800 style. But as she is climbing the bluff back to her brother, a volcanic tremor shakes the island, knocking her down and sending rocks rolling after her. Metallo catches her and then shields her from the landslide with his indestructible body. It seems Metallo has lost his memory as he and the children talk, and they decide to adopt him as their, as their own, giving him the name Steel Man, even though Sarita wanted to call him Tin Man. Basically, this triggers some of Metallo's memories, but he doesn't have time to think it over because an oil tanker wrecks nearby and Metallo must rescue the drive fr driver from plummeting over the cliff. Metallo is successful despite a fire breaking out, and the trucker is thankful but scared witless of the metallic villain. Back at the Daily Planet, Jimmy gives the report of a robot across the wire, which catches Clark's attention, of course. And when Clark goes to ask Perry to send him to cover it, Lois has already been assigned the story and takes off. We get a brief stop-off of Superman at Star Labs to grab the kryptonite-shielded suit, while Sarita and Bobby hang out with Metallo. Sarita has made a makeshift doll for Metallo of Superman. This triggers Metallo's memory and his rage, and he crushes the doll the girl made for him. And then we fade to commercial break. So let's talk about some of the thoughts I have on this. We begin with that, where are they now? We also see Brainiac, Lobo, Toy Man, Parasite, and then Metallo. So a little wink to past villains. And they do say that this takes place one year later, after Way of All Flesh, which by my estimation means Superman has been active in public for maybe two years, maybe about a year and a half, long enough to get in the groove, but still have a bit of room to grow. And he will. We're going to see a lot happen to this Man of Steel. Uh, I like the idea that we have recurring reporter in Angela Chan, which is much like Summer on Batman the Animated Series. And she mentions that the public last saw Metallo fighting Superman, but we last saw him walking across the ocean floor in that epic ending. Expect another one on this episode. Uh, the toys Bobby is playing with that he does not share with his sister are action figures of the Quantum Rider. I want more of that figure. And let's be honest, how cool would it have been to have him playing you know, with something like the Grey Ghost figures, tying that into Batman the Animated Series even more? Uh, the setting of an island with a volcano seems to be a direct callback to the Fleischer cartoon Volcano. I know I'm being kind of obvious here, but knowing that those classic cartoons were a big, big influence on Bruce Timm and inspired the look of Batman, I have to assume it's intentional. And that's a very, very good thing. Uh, Metallo's return when he comes out of the water and reveals himself to Sarita immediately made me think of Frankenstein, which is another callback on this show after the more blatant allegory of the fire monster in the Prometheus episode. Luckily, this had a different outcome for Sarita than the girl in the book or the movie. Oh, well, and one thing I can ask is how can Metallo enunciate without lips? Or does moving his mouth only happen out of sort of habit? Um, he has some sort of metallic voice box. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking that. Um, we do get the 
the idea that they wanted to name him Tin Man first, which is Wizard of Oz. Yes, if he only had a heart that wasn't made of kryptonite. I get it. It's it's only heavy-handed if you're breaking the episode down um, and analyzing uh, analyzing it the way I am. If it's just a casual watch, it really isn't punching you in the face with it. I did think the wrecked truck was a bit convenient. And then Metallo was awesome. He scrapes his way down the bluff. If If not for just the awesomeness of the action sequence, I really would have just rolled my eyes and called it good. And let's drop the truck into the ocean. That's right, he rescues it, he gets the driver, the tanker gets dropped in the ocean where the oil will kill the local wildlife. I also want to note that we are almost 8 minutes into what is essentially a 19 minute episode, if you take out commercials um, and credits, so on and so forth. It's 8 minutes before we get to Clark and Metropolis. And we also get Ernie, I am awesome Hudson, as Ron Troop. A credit that bothers me a little bit. Because while I I think it's awesome, he's never referred to as Ron Troop, which kind of falls into a lot of assumption, which is a, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say it, it's a very stereotypical thing to assume. I think it's fairly safe, but at the same time, there's a part of me that feels guilty when he's never referred to as Ron Troop, to assume that is Ron Troop. I'm going to leave that there. Uh, like in the Fleischer cartoon, Lois goes to a volcano island, Unlike that one, this one has merchandising potential. A lava suit. Well, it's an anti-kryptonite suit, but as soon as I saw it, I thought of an anti-lava suit. And it brought back Lava Fury Batman. That happened. No, that really happened. Google it. Um, This merchandising, the way this cartoon worked, the merchandising was built in, and it did work well with the action figures. Um, The action figures were very, very briefly hot. Because I believe there was a wave that didn't make it to retail. So for a while, to get a Supergirl action figure from that line, which I have right behind me, about a foot and a... That's about three feet to my right, was expensive at one one point. But as far as the episode, so far so good. The episode has pulled me in. Superman has only been in on screen for about 12 seconds. Clark was on for about 20 seconds. So that's a true testament to how well it's written. So let's see what happens in the next segment. Coming back from the commercial, we rejoin Bobby and Sarita with her with their dad, reminding them to stay close because the volcano can erupt at any time. You think it will? You want to put money down? Meanwhile, Lois interviews the truck driver that Metallo rescued, and he mentions that Metallo left with a pair of kids. As if on cue, Metallo convinces the kids that he is an alien and the fate of the world rests on him contacting their planet's leaders. When the kids go back home to find a disguise for Metallo, Lois stops to ask them a few questions. On another part of the island, Superman talks with Sarita and Bobby's dad, and the volcano has a massive tremor. Superman, well, it's actually a mild eruption because Superman bashes any falling boulders apart and then diverts the lava flow to the water by burrowing a tunnel. The kid's father tells Superman that the eruption is just the beginning and they prepare to evacuate. But... Sarita and Bobby are fixing Metallo up in a fedora, scarf, and trench coat. Looks kind of like the shadow. They mention that a lady was asking about him, and he snaps at the kids, and he scans the area and spots Lois spying on them. And we fade to commercial break with Lois in the clutches of Metallo. So jumping back to the notes, as I mentioned in the credits, we have Ernie Hudson doing double duty as Sarita and Bobby's dad. Uh... I've liked Ernie Hudson since he was in Ghostbusters 1 and 2, and also in a movie called The Crow. He was very, very good in that movie. 
Um, we also have Malcolm Medell in another Crow reference. We have him also playing the truck driver. And he does this great John Polito, who was also in The Crow. And it's ironic, with John Polito, he played a character called Gideon. And I remember watching that movie and reading the comic and thinking, man, he really just looks like the part. The reason is James O'Barr, who wrote and uh, drew The Crow, based the character of Gideon on John Polito after seeing him in a movie. So when it came time to do the movie, they got John Polito. That's a snake eating its own tail right there. Uh, but how did Lois know about Sarita and Bobby? That's a pretty big assumption. Um, and as, as the bet was made earlier in the synopsis, we all knew the volcano would erupt, right? However, Superman bashing the falling boulders is too cool to get mad at because it's not like he's, you know, punching a laser beam or something. <clears throat> Once again, I'm surprised with how much this show managed to get away with. Metello grabs Bobby's arm and it's pretty violent um and violence against children on a children's program that's a bit much we also have him turning on lois so interesting how much this skirted with standards and practices this would not have gotten away with prior to batman the animated series i can tell you that but let's get back to the action picking up the story metello ties lois up as the evacuation sirens begin sounding throughout the island superman speaks to the kid's father who is frantically looking for them and Superman finds a crayon drawing of Metallo and puts two and two together. Metallo begins to leave Lois to be killed by the volcano against the kids' protests, and then Superman shows up in his kryptonite protection gear. He lays a wallop on Metallo and frees Lois, telling her to get the kids out of there. Lois doesn't listen, but as Superman battles Metallo, his suit gets ripped, which exposes him to the kryptonite rays of Metallo's heart, and the fight gets intense with Metello trying to drown Superman in the lava as it begins filling the area around the combatants as well as Lois and the kids. Bobby calls out to Metello to stop, but he declares that the Steel Man is dead and continues trying to kill Superman. In desperation, Superman rips the kryptonite core out of Metello and throws it into the lava. Frantic, Metello dives in after it as Superman whisks Lois and the kids out of the area as it becomes completely overrun with lava. Metallo gets swept away in the lava, and Bobby and Sarita wonder why Metallo turned bad. And somewhere in the solidified lava, Metallo speaks to himself, embedded into a cavern, reminding himself that he is Metallo. He mustn't let his mind drift. And we fade to black, with only the green glow of Metallo's eye left on the screen. And thus ends the episode. I do want to say the crayon picture, the depiction, is actually quite excellent. I don't know if that was inserted from an actual crayon drawing, but freeze-framing it, it really is just a very sharp, sharp image. I mean, it's not artistically good, but it really does look like a crayon image. Um, Malcolm McDowell, when he is in the mode, he plays the cold, calculating side of Metallo with chilling results. One of my favorite things about Metallo showing up on this show is that Superman can cut loose, and we always get strong action. And yeah, I was a bit bummed that we had a rip in Superman's outfit because that's that's formula. Whenever he's fighting anything kryptonite related, he's got to be exposed to it. But, I mean, fair enough, we needed the suspense, I guess. And then Lois and the kids stand and watch. Even though Superman just told her to get the kids out of there. That really irks me. And let's be honest, Superman taking a lava bath, that is awesome. Ripping the kryptonite heart out of Metallo. 
something that rides the fence again in, in terms of standards and practices. I know he's a machine, but I'm not... My jaw doesn't drop that it slid through. I think that's how they slid it by. But I know that when they were doing the Ruby Spears Superman, Superman could not punch a robot because robots have souls. No, I kid you not. That was actually their rationale. And as the lava overtakes him, McDowell gives Metallo just an awesome, almost Wilhelm-style scream. It actually is a little bit terrifying. And we close the episode with another awesome Metallo moment, embedded in the lava, reminding himself of who he is. I've mentioned in the comics, I really don't have any affinity for Metallo, but for some reason the animated series really gets it for me. I think it sees the potential for a tragic figure. Um, it's one, you know, I always feel, simultaneously I feel pity and spite for this Metallo. And no matter what happens to him, I, I mean, you know he's going to be back, and you can't help but look forward to his next appearance. And that is Superman the Animated Series Season 2, Episode 9, Action Figures. Next time, next time it begins. Are you ready? It begins. I begin my 75th anniversary celebration of Superman in earnest. And I'm going to start by doing something I haven't done before, which is define what is my Superman. And I do invite you to do the same thing. Tell, tell me the components you would put into your Superman. What defines Superman for you? So drop that in the email at mail at supermanforever.com, which you'll hear at the end, or tweet me, what have you. Um, we'll also, of course, have another episode of Superman the Animated Series. And who knows what will pop into my head between now and then. Now, I've been very coy. I've been keeping a lot of the material for 2013 under wraps. Um, just to kind of keep you interested, and I think... I, th I think I think it's time to give you an overview of what the, some of the high-profile stories will be encompassing my 75th anniversary celebration because I've been very coy, and I think that's getting to the point where I'm drawing it out too much. So things you can look forward to is Birthright, both volumes of Earth One, Miracle Monday, All-Star Superman, in full this time, Red Sun, Superman Hulk, Secret Identity, Kingdom Come, Superman the Secret Years, Superman 4 Tomorrow, and a few more things to throw in there as well. I have a really good solid slate of guests to help me. And you, you are a big part of this show. So email me, um, and while you're at it, you might rate the show on iTunes. It has one review right now. Uh, Facebook the show, tweet the show. I definitely want you to be a part of this. It's our celebration. And it's what I am calling the Year of Superman. That is my hashtag. So jump in and celebrate with me, for this is hashtag the Year of Superman. So until next time, I am J. David Weeder, looking forward to beginning the 75th anniversary with you, and also saying, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman Forever Radio is a NatWorld production. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review. The show's episodes and extended show notes are available at supermanforever.com, where episodes premiere every Sunday. Episode postings can also be found at the supermanhomepage.com and at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of quality Superman podcasts for your listening pleasure. And episodes are also available on Stitcher Radio. Email is always welcome. The address is mail at supermanforever.com. You can friend and follow the show at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. And David is also on Twitter with the handle at superdaveweeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties of DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters are copyrighted properties of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Entertainment. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and copyrights remain with the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As always, thank you so much for listening.